Thank you so much for joining us for Ankeny Gospel Church Podcast. On this podcast, you can find sermons, classes, and other resources that continue to invite us into the mission of Jesus and the journey of faith. We hope this is a blessing to you, and if we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out. Hello, my name is Leanne, and today the scripture is from Matthew 9, verse 9 through 17. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me, and he got up and followed him. While he was reclining at the table in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came to eat with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now when he heard this, he said, it is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Then John's disciples came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests be sad while the groom is with them? The time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one patches an old garment with unshrunk cloth, because the patch pulls away from the garment and makes the tear worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the skins burst, the wine spills out, and the skins are ruined. No, they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. God. You guys can go ahead and take a seat. I don't know if you know this, but that song we just sang is, is a really uh, scary song if you consider it because we're asking God to show us his glory. And if you're familiar with the scriptures, every time God shows up with his glory, uh, people are terrified, people um, are changed, People feel vulnerable. They feel exposed. Sometimes people die. Um, and yet we just prayed for God to show us his, his glory. And it's a good prayer. We should pray it. But it is threatening because if you actually, if God answers that prayer, which he sometimes does, he sometimes doesn't, but if God answers that prayer, then, um, you know, your life your life will never be the same, like ever. And uh, there's something terrifying about that because when we are confronted with the presence and the glory of God for who he is, then we are exposed for who we really are. And we don't like that. We like to hold on to who we are. We, we cover ourselves up with fig leaves and busyness and jobs and relationships and status and all these things that we cover. Christians too, I'm not just talking about uh, unbelievers, Christians, we do this all the time. So for God to, to show us his glory um, and to unveil his face so that we can see him clearly, it's also calling us to put down everything that uh, we think we have to offer, good or bad. Um, so I love that song, and we're going to keep singing it, but I just wanted to double click on that because that song is weighty. It's very weighty. Um, anyway, wasn't planning on saying that, but here we are. Here at Ankeny Gospel Church, if you're new to Ankeny Gospel Church, welcome. Um, I'm glad that you're here. We're glad that you're here. My name is Parker. 
I'm one of the pastors here. Our, uh, speaking of the presence and the glory of God, at AGC, our, our vision, our mission, our goal is to become disciples, become disciples of Jesus, but also specifically become disciples of presence, formation, and mission, where we seek the presence of God in everything that we do, always seeking his face, always asking him to show us his glory. We become disciples of presence. We also want to become disciples of formation, counter-formation. We're always being formed by the world, by our thoughts, by what we listen to, by what we see, by where we go, by how we travel, by who we spend our time with. And to become a disciple is to become a disciple of formation, counter-formation in the way of Jesus. The world wants to give us a heavy burden. Jesus wants to give us a light burden. The world wants to keep us busy so that we can't hear the voice of God. Jesus asks us into the secret place that we can't hear the voice of God. Counter-formation. Becoming disciples of presence, becoming disciples of formation, and we long to become disciples of mission, too. We're not in the world for God. We are in God for the world, and he has called us to be the kingdom of heaven right here, right now, to be a little foretaste of eternity, to be a foretaste of the divine banquet that was set aside for us one day. And so in our relationships, we're, 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 we're fulfilling, we're, we are living the kingdom of heaven so that when people bump, bump into us, they know what heaven is like, they know what Jesus is like. When we're at work, when we're at school, when we're talking to our neighbors, they know what, heaven, they know what Jesus is like because they've, they've run into you. So we, our, our desire here at Ankeny Gospel Church is to become disciples of presence, formation, and mission who seek the presence of God, are formed into the image of Jesus and live on mission for the renewal of the city because Jesus' center phrase of his prayer is on earth as it is in heaven. And so that's our little thing, in Ankeny as it is in heaven. We want to see the kingdom of heaven here now. And the only way that's possible is by the power, presence, and ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you've been following uh, along or if you've been here for a while, we are in a series on Matthew. And Matthew, the subtitle of, of Matthew is the kingdom of heaven. And um, uh, Matthew, we, we've known Matthew is divided up into five different movements. Um, we are, we're currently in movement two. Each movement of Matthew ends with a large teaching of Jesus. The first one was the Sermon on the Mount. In a few months, we're going to get to chapter 10 of Matthew, which is the missional discourse where Jesus gathers his disciples, and he's like, all right, I'm going to send you out and do this. So each movement of Matthew ends with the significant teaching of Jesus. Now, uh, in order to kind of set the context, because um, we're, we're, we're jumping in here in, in chapter 9, in order to set the context, I want to do a little, it's going to be a little technical these first few minutes, but I'm excited about it, and so you should be too. And also you're kind of like hostages, unless you get up and walk out, but you kind of have to follow me here. So I want to do a little context. It's going to get technical and it's going to get structural, but if you have your Bibles, turn actually to Matthew chapter 4, and by Bibles I mean books, not phones, just another shameless plug. Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, <clears throat> and this will be up on the screen too. Well, yeah, okay. Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. Listen to this or follow along with me. Now Jesus began to go all over Galilee teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Okay, Jesus is doing three things. He's teaching in the synagogues, he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and he's healing every disease and sickness. Flip over to chapter 9, verse 35. You can keep that on the screen, by the way. Chapter 9, verse 35. Jesus continued, or you could stay in 423. Spoiler, it's the same thing. Jesus continued going around all, to all towns and villages, doing what? Teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news, the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. You guys catch that? It's the exact same thing. 
Chapter four, verse 23, is the same thing as chapter nine, verse 35. Jesus is going around, he's, he's, he's teaching in the synagogues, he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and he's healing every disease and sickness. Now, th- this in, in um, technical language is called an inclusio, inclusio, like it's an inclusion, so like you have the same thing at the front and the end, it means that everything within it is like its own section. So what Matthew is trying to show us is that everything after 423 and before 935 is like in this section. Now, let's go back to 423. What's the next chapter after 423? After chapter four is chapter five. Okay, good. <laughs> chapter four, after chapter four is chapter five. And what does Jesus start speaking in chapter five? He goes up on the mountain and he starts giving the Sermon on the Mount. This is what we went through last spring and early summer. Um, and it's three chapters, chapter five, chapter six, chapter seven, and it'll be on the screen here too. What Jesus is doing is he is telling us what the kingdom of heaven is like. In his word, in the Sermon on the Mount, he is showing us, or sorry, he is telling us this is the kingdom of heaven. This is upside down kingdom, this upside down economy where blessed are the poor in spirit, not the rich in spirit. Blessed are those who have nothing to give and are actually longing and hungry rather than those who are satisfied now. He talks about loving your enemies. Uh, he talks about forgiving those who are angry with you, not just the people that you're angry with. Like, he, just this radical, what he's doing is he's telling us in word what the kingdom of heaven looks like. If you're a disciple of Jesus and you're in Christ, this is the word, chapter five, chapter six, chapter seven, of what your life is like. Not should be like, is like, as a disciple. So then chapter seven ends, and this is where we started movement two, just a few weeks ago. Chapter eight begins, and what does Jesus do? Jesus comes down the mountain, and immediately he what? He, t- he sees people, and he starts healing people. He sees the man with leprosy, he heals him. He sees the, uh, 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 the um, centurion, and he heals his servant with a word. Peter's mother-in-law heals her, heals her, excuse me. Last week, Nate talked about calming the wind and the waves, healing this other, all these demon-possessed people, casting out demons, forgiving this paralytic man's sin and then telling him to get up and rise. What's he doing in chapters eight and nine? He's showing us what the kingdom of heaven is like. Indeed, in his deed. So in chapters five through seven, what's Jesus doing? He's telling, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. Chapters eight and nine, he's what? He's going around healing every disease and sickness. In his deeds, he is showing us what the kingdom of heaven looks like. Why? Because in the kingdom of heaven, is there any disease or sickness? No. Is there any death or decay? Not in Jesus' economy. It's upside down. In our economy, we have death and decay and sicknesses of all kind, but in Jesus' kingdom of heaven, what he's doing, he told us what it looked like, in his word, chapters five through seven, and now what he's doing is he's showing us what it looks like. He's showing us what heaven is like in his actions and his deeds. And of course, Matthew is no, um, he wasn't just haphazardly writing this down. He includes this together in 423. Jesus taught in the synagogues, preached the gospel of the kingdom, and healed every disease and sickness. And then what does Jesus do? Sermon on the Mount, he teaches. Chapters eight and nine, he shows us. And then it concludes, 935, Jesus went all around teaching in the synagogues preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. Do you guys see this structure? Isn't this cool how Matthew like designed this? Now, we're gonna get one one layer deeper. Okay, chapters eight and nine. If you wanna look at chapters eight and nine with uh, me, you can, but it'll also be here up on the screen. Chapters eight and nine is also divided into, or it's like set up in this cool, you know, structure for that nerds like me can be like, oh, this is amazing. 
After the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus comes down, and what happens? Immediately, a man with leprosy approaches him. We talked about this a few weeks ago. There are three miracle stories then. Immediately, boom, boom, boom. The leper, the centurion's servant, and Peter's mother-in-law. Three miracle stories. Then, there's this little interlude of the cost of discipleship. This, this person comes to him and he says, hey, I want to follow you. And he says, uh, foxes have, you know, dens or holes. Um, foxes have dens, birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Little intermission there. Then it gets back into uh, chapter 8, 23 through 9, 8. This is what Nate preached on last week. Three more miracle stories. Calming the winds and the waves, demons driven out by Jesus, and the Son of Man forgives the paralytic and then heals. Today we're going to talk about another interlude, which is going to be about... Um, a, a, a religious spirit. But then finally, Matthew concludes, and there's three more miracle stories. There's three sets of three miracle stories. Pretty cool, huh? Like it's like, oh, this, this works out. This is intentional. This is the structure of it. And so next week, we're gonna talk about the final three miracle stories. A girl uh, restored, uh, healing of the blind, and then driving out, out a demon. And then, of course, it ends with Jesus saying, or uh, Jesus going all around, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and sickness. So that's the structure that we're in. And I, this might not be cool to you, but I think, I think it's pretty cool. But that's the structure of Matthew chapters five through nine. Jesus in his word in the Sermon on the Mount shows us, or, sorry, tells us what the kingdom of heaven is like. And then in chapters eight and, nine, eight and nine, he shows us what the kingdom of heaven is like. Now, that's the structure, but let me ask you a question uh, that I've asked myself. Does understanding the structure of Matthew chapters five through nine, help us understand Matthew chapters five through nine. Some of you, in, if, if you're in my small group, you're like, is this a trick question? Because I like to ask a lot of trick questions. Does understanding the structure of Matthew chapters five through nine, how it's the word and it's the deed, does it help us understand Matthew chapters five through nine? Let's go bigger, Matthew as a whole, right? We're in five, there's five movements of Matthew. If you understand that the five movements of Matthew that each end with a significant teaching of Jesus, they mirror the five books of the Psalms, they mirror the five books of the Pentateuch, Jesus is the new and better Moses bringing us a law unlike the law of Moses, does understanding that structure help you understand the meaning of Matthew? Does understanding the structure of Matthew as a whole help us understand Matthew better? Let me ask it a different way. Does understanding the structure of the Sermon on the Mount the fact that it's all built around this phrase on earth as it is in heaven, does that get you to the heart of the Sermon on the Mount? Does understanding these miracle stories, three sets of three miracle stories and an interlude in between, does that help you understand the heart of what Jesus is doing, the heart of his ministry? And the answer is no. In other words, you can understand the text and miss the point. You can understand the Sermon on the Mount, the structure of it, and you can understand the miracle stories and how they're organized and all this beautiful literary design, but you can completely miss the point of them. Meaning what? We can go our entire lives, we can read texts, we can be in Bible studies, we can systematize our theology and completely miss the heart of Christ. We can go our entire lives reading the Bible, having verses memorized about the love of God, and still think that God doesn't love you. We can recite verses on the love of God and how we should love our neighbor, yet come no closer to actually loving 
our neighbor. We can know that we're made in the image of God, but forget the fact that God himself, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit is in relationship, and so we don't live in relationship with others, but we isolate ourselves. We can read the words and the miracles of Jesus and all of the times where Jesus says this, but miss the point that he actually wants to do miracles through us right now. We can be so concerned with getting the Bible right, having the right doctrine, the right interpretation, that we miss the mystery, the complexity, the unknowability of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. We can make mountains out of molehills on something like a creation account, whether it was literal or allegorical, and completely miss the point that God is the God who brings light into darkness, order out of chaos, and life out of death. We can read through the prophets, get mad at the sexual promiscuity of the Israelites and how they turned to other gods, but completely miss the fact that the most mad God and the prophets ever got was towards greedy, self-indulgent, religious people who neglected the poor and needy. We can read Matthew chapter six and read Jesus saying, when you give to the poor, when you pray, when you fast, but then go our entire lives thinking that giving to the poor is a social justice issue that's reserved for liberal Christians and fasting is an old bygone issue reserved for legalistic Christians. In other words, we can read the Bible and miss the point. Now, where did I get all those illustrations from? Those examples from? I got them from my own life because I have been studying the Bible for a long time and I, still today, I can be studying and studying and studying and completely miss the heart of Christ. And that's scary because that shows me two things about myself and maybe you, you can resonate with that. That shows me two things about myself. The first is that I'm probably a lot more like a Pharisee than I think. And if you related to any of those illustrations, then we might be more like Pharisees than we think. If you grew up in church, you know that the, Pharisee are, the Pharisees are the bad guys, right? Like Pharisees equals bad guys, right? But that, that's unfortunate. Don't think that. Because one scholar actually translates the Pharisees as the serious. Instead of calling them the Pharisees, he calls them the serious. And I know I'm very serious about the Bible. I know we at AGC are very serious about the Bible. But that should also be a warning to us. Because the Pharisees, we would be friends with the Pharisees. We, they would have the right worldview. They would have the right translation of the Bible. They would have the right understanding about X, Y, and Z. And so the, it's a warning to us to think, if, if, those things res- if I'm more concerned with understanding the text, but I actually don't understand the text, I'm probably more like a Pharisee than I think. And the second thing it tells me is that there is a beautiful invitation in front of us, a beautiful invitation in front of us. Because the v- Pharisees, while they um, were scolded often, they were not discounted by Jesus. Jesus didn't, didn't not give them an invitation. He gave them an invitation. There's no rebuke here. There's no condemnation here. There's no accusation here. There's no, oh, well, I stink because I understood a text without understanding the point. This right here, right now, and what we're about to see is an invitation by Jesus himself to begin again to relearn, to step into his grace and forgiveness through repentance and faith, or in the words of Jesus, to go and learn what this means. As we're gonna see, we don't need to just repent of our wrongdoings, 
Sometimes, if we're more like the Pharisees, we actually need to repent of our right doings because the spirit of the Pharisees or the spirit of religion makes us think that we're in the right. It makes us think that we're in the right because when I, when I have a spirit of religion or a spirit of the Pharisees, I repent of my sin. I repent of my wrongdoings. I repent of that. But what do I hold on to? All the things I'm doing well. All the things I'm doing good. And that spirit of religion makes us hold on to that so that we think that that's what is gonna make Jesus happy with me. Because the Pharisees, they did all the right stuff. They did all the right stuff. They did like, like everything right. They, they were fasting correctly. They were praying correctly. They were the leaders. They were the Bible study leaders. They were in church every single week. They were doing all of the right stuff. But they didn't repent of that. Because they understood the text, but they didn't understand the text. They understood the structure of, of the Sermon on the Mount, but they didn't get the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. And so our invitation today is the exact same. Enter into a posture of humility where we can say, Lord, I, I, that's great. All this stuff is great. The structure's great. The outline's great. But I need to go and learn what this means. So with that, let's get to the text. But before we do, I want to, my intro's now over, 10, 10 minutes into the sermon. I do want to set aside time because we know, I said earlier, that we can't do anything without the power, presence, and ministry of the Holy Spirit. And the only way that we can understand the point is if the Spirit opens our eyes. So if you would, would you, would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we recognize that your ways are above our ways, your thoughts are above our thoughts. And Holy Spirit, right now we ask you to invade our hearts. Holy Spirit, right now we ask you to, to come and to open our eyes that we may see. Holy Spirit, right now we ask you to come and we ask you to unstop our ears that we might be able to hear. And Holy Spirit, right now we ask you to soften our hearts. And as Paul prayed, Lord, give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we may understand with all the saints what is the height and depth and width of your love that surpasses knowledge. Father, we ask for that double knowledge today. That we may know your love and we may be forever changed by it. We pray all this in your son's name by the power of the spirit. Amen. Matthew chapter 9. Verse nine, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and he followed him. Matthew uh, is a tax collector. This is the first mention of Matthew here and this is also one of the other only calls of a disciple specifically by Jesus, which by the way, in first century Palestine, disciples chose their rabbi not the other way around. So there was like a waiting list. You know, I want, I want rabbi this guy. I want rabbi this guy. Jesus flipped that on its head. And he said, no, no, no. I'm actually gonna be the one to choose my disciples. So Jesus is walking by and he sees a tax collector. Again, tax collectors are not good people. There were three regions in the uh, um, Palestine area. Each of them was a Herod. There was like Herod Antipas, Herod Philip, and Herod the Tetrarch, all this stuff. Anyway, whenever you would cross from one region to another, like a county, from one county to another, you would have to pay taxes. 
and you have to pay taxes to Rome. And basically it was just all these different Herods, they were like wanting to get richer and richer, so they were like, okay, you, get, you, you owe me this much tax when you cross in. On top of that, if you had goods or like, um, like cattle or things that you were trading or you were selling, you had to pay a tax on that. On top of that, what they did, what Rome did, is they actually employed um, their like Israel, Jewish people to be tax collectors so that you know, they wouldn't revolt against their own people. And so the tax collectors then could take whatever percentage they wanted on top of that. So tax collectors were sellouts. If you were a tax collector, odds are you lost relationship with your family because they did not like you, because they didn't like Rome. Odds are you were greedy, not odds are, you were greedy, like because you're like, the only, we, the only reason you would be a tax collector is to get more money. And odds are you would have no social life at all. And so as a tax collector, what you would do is you would sit there at the tax booth and then you would count out, this is the tax for this region and this region, and then on top of that, you would just literally add a number to whatever you wanted to put in your own pocket. Some scholars estimate that the most, liberal, the most uh, liberal estimation is that sometimes, depending on the year, you were taxed up to 90% of what you made that year. 90%, after you added everything on, you have to go to this tax, you have to do this tax, and then tax collectors are taking 10% for themselves, all this stuff, 90% of your income taxed. And Matthew's sitting there and he's like, whew, this is nice, I like this. Uh, uh, all the other tax collectors are doing the exact same thing. So when Jesus passes by the tax booth, he knows that a good rabbi would never look that direction because they're sellouts. They uh, are definitely, they're, they're Jewish, but they're not like Jew, they're not like serious about their faith. They're like, yeah, sure, they're in the family of God, but they're not serious about this faith. And he looks over there, and he already has four fishermen, by the way, which like fishermen, okay, but tax collectors are like, yeah, you don't do that. And Jesus says, follow me. Sometimes you have to repent of your sin in order to follow Jesus. And what did Matthew do? He got up and he followed him. Four verbs. Jesus said to him, follow me. He got up and he followed him. Immediate. Matthew followed him immediately. Jesus then goes to his house. Verse 10, while he was reclining at the table in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came to eat with Jesus and his disciples. Now, uh, when you think, when it says, you know, he was reclining um, at the table in the house, this actually wasn't in the house because the houses were like super, super small. So most houses, especially if you were wealthy, like a tax collector would be, most houses had a courtyard in the front. And so the table would be out there and the food would be out there. And so you'd be reclining out there. So if you're walking down the street, you can see everybody at, at the house. So what, what this is saying is that multiple tax collectors and sinners were with Jesus. Now these sinners were still Jewish people, but they didn't go to church all the time. They didn't do the right sacrifices. They were probably poor. Other scholars say that sinners here means poor, like the, the poor and the needy, because in order to make a sacrifice, you had to have money to buy the animal to make the sacrifice. And if you didn't have money to buy the animal to make the sacrifice, then you were therefore ceremonially unclean, and then you were just in this downward spiral, and you couldn't get out of it, and therefore you were a sinner. All these people are flocking to the Son of God. And what do the Pharisees do? Verse 11. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, notice they don't ask Jesus himself, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, before we throw stones at the Pharisees, remember, the Old Testament, multiple passages in the Old Testament talk about not associating with sinners. Think of Psalm 1. 
Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, sit in the seat of scoffers. Psalm 26, verses four and five says the exact same thing. And in fact, it says, I do not eat at the table with those who are sinners. So if you're a, a serious about the Bible, you're not gonna do those things. The Pharisees had a salvation by separation. If we can separate ourselves enough from those sinners, then at one point, if we're all following the law completely, if we're all taking God seriously at his word, then the messianic age will come and, 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 and God will rule uh, in, in Jerusalem. That was their thinking. So clearly Jesus can't be a serious Jew because he's doing the exact opposite of what Psalms, now, now who's right, the scriptures or Jesus? Another trick question. The answer is obviously, like, is Jesus sinning in this situation? Now, before we say no, Jesus wasn't sinning because he's the son of God, let's think about this because the context of the scriptures is a salvation by separation. If you come into contact with sin or sinners, you are unclean. Jesus is coming into contact with sin and sinners without himself sinning. So is he unclean? A few weeks ago, we looked at Jesus touching the leper. Jesus healing a woman. Jesus touching a, next week we're going to see Jesus touches a dead person, raises him to life. These are ceremonially, un, ceremonially unclean things, and yet what happens? Jesus does not get unclean because of his contact with the sinners and the lepers and the dead people. Rather, the opposite happens. His life is now given to those people. Sometimes it's easy to believe that, oh, God doesn't associate with sinners. God doesn't, God probably looks at me a little bit with disappointment because I'm unholy and I can't, I can't live up to these standards. And that is just dead wrong. That's absolutely wrong. Jesus enters into your sin and your brokenness and your disease and your fear and your anxiety and your loneliness. He enters into it. He sits with you there. He dines with you there. He doesn't leave you there either. His touch, his glory, his presence, he calls you out to be what? Holy, beloved, sons, daughters of the king. I'm getting ahead of myself. The fair... The Pharisees, they see this. They ask the disciples, why does your teacher do that? Clearly, he's not a good rabbi. And uh, uh, Jesus, verse 12, when he heard this, Jesus answered, it is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. This is a common phrase. It was a proverb, actually, in the uh, first century Palestine. So Jesus is appealing to common sense here. Hey, who needs a doctor? If you're healthy, do you need a doctor? No. If you're sick, do you need a doctor? Yeah. Then he says this. Love this verse. Go, verse 13, and learn what this means. Let's pause there. Um, the Pharisees had to have the entire book of Psalms memorized. They had to have the entire Pentateuch memorized. And they had to have most of the prophets memorized. Their brains weren't melted with like Twitter and Netflix and stuff like ours are. So they actually could like remember stuff like this. So they had like, th this was their entertainment. The Bi literally, the, the, the Hebrew Bible was their entertainment. They would have known it inside and out. As soon as Jesus says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, they would have known, oh yeah, Hosea 6, 6. Duh, like that's, that's obvious. Jesus says what? Not go and read this. Go and learn what this means. First of all, that's insulting because the Pharisees would have already learned what it means. Second of all, it means what? That the Pharisees understood the text without understanding the text. They understood the text. 
They could have told you the, the theme of Hosea. They could have told you the context in which that verse fit. What came before it, what came after it. They would have just started quoting it. They would have known how, how, how Hosea ends, how it's in the book of the 12 and it's the start of the 12 prophets and Malachi is the end and it's this future day of the Lord that we're waiting for. They would have been able to wax elephant about that, as I like to say. But Jesus says, go and learn what this means, implying they don't get it. And then he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. This quote is from Hosea chapter six, and it's actually gonna be here on the screen because we need to understand the context because our brains are melted by Twitter and Netflix. And so uh, Hosea six, four through six says this, what am I gonna do with you, Ephraim? What am I, this is the Lord Yahweh speaking to Israel. What am I gonna do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist and like the early dew that vanishes. That's, you don't wanna hear that one second here, the next second gone. This is why I have used the prophet, the prophets to cut them down, Israel down. I have killed them, Israel, with the words from my mouth, my judgment strikes like lightning. And then finally, verse six says this, for I desire faithful love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Notice he doesn't say, I desire faithful love or mercy. It's a different translation of Hebrew and Greek. I desire faithful love, this covenant loyalty, this, this chesed love. I desire that instead, like as opposed to, or in addition to sacrifice. He doesn't say that. He says, I desire faithful love, mercy, loyalty, your heart. I don't care about sacrifices. Now, if you know, the Old Testament's not about the sacrificial system. It's not about the law. It's a story about how the law didn't work. God in his mercy, he's always, always been a God of grace through faith. Always. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's before the law. The sacrifice and the sacrificial system, the law, it came because of sin. Jesus' heart, God's heart has always been the same. Grace through faith. Sin made the law come, and so now we have this law, we have the sacrificial system because our hearts are gone astray. Isaiah and Jeremiah say, your righteousness is like filthy rags, your heart is deceitful, but what are they doing? They're prophesying about a new righteousness and a new heart that's been from the very beginning. God wants to bring us back into relationship with him. So when Jesus says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, what he's saying is you've read, you've understood the text, but you've missed the entire point. It, it, this is not about sacrifices. This isn't about you're doing your right stuff. This isn't about hanging on to this. It's about humbling yourselves, taking off whatever fig leaves you've sown, humbling yourselves, and saying, Lord, I want to have faithful love for you. And that only comes how? That only comes how? A new heart. A new love. A new righteousness. Because sometimes, again, the spirit of religion says we need to repent of our wrongdoings, but it holds on to our right doings, our righteousness. Well, I, I've got the right worldview. I listen to the right people. I don't get drunk all the time. I don't do this all the time. I don't have those sins in my life anymore. I come to church. I'm part of a church plant. I vote this certain way. I do all these certain things. Does it matter? Is that the point? That's what the Pharisees did. And they were offended by Jesus. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He goes on. 
I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, are the Pharisees righteous? Sure, they had an external righteousness. But Jesus didn't come to call them. Why? Because they didn't admit their sin. You look at these tax collectors and sinners, oh, they know. You don't have to tell them that they're sinners. They know it. Everybody's reminding them how bad they are. Everybody's reminding them how not good enough they are. Everybody's keeping them at arm's length. But the righteous, the Pharisees, they don't know that they're sinning because they're doing everything right. They don't realize what they're missing because they're doing everything right. You don't have to convince a sinner, somebody who is completely uh, uh, abandoned by society, by, by all the religious structures, you don't have to convince them that they're wrong. You know what you have to convince that they're wrong? The people who think that they're right. Jesus says, I didn't come to call you guys. I came here for those who know their brokenness, who have nothing good to stand on. I came to call those who understand that they have nothing more to give. Those who are, I don't know, poor in spirit. Those who mourn. Those who are humble and meek. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those who are pure in heart. Those who are the peacemakers and those who are persecuted. That's who Jesus came for. The following narrative, verse 14 to 17, John's disciples come, John the baptizer's disciples come to Jesus and say, hey, we fast, the Pharisees fast, but you guys don't fast. And Jesus basically says this, you're not gonna fast at a, at a wedding. A wedding in Jewish uh, tradition was seven days long. Oh, it'd be, it's like a whole party. It was like a vacation. It was like a party. And it, especially like the, the family and the, the closest friends, it would be literal seven days of eating and drinking and dining and dancing and celebrating and all this stuff. It was awesome. Wasn't, I wasn't there. It's not like it was awesome. But, um, it would have been awesome. Anyway, seven days. So the rudest thing you could do at a wedding is just not eat the fine food and not drink the fine drink that the wedding host would give you, right? Jesus is saying, hey, uh, uh, the party's here, so to speak. Are, you, are, are we gonna fast in the middle of a wedding? Absolutely not. Now, he, does, he doesn't condemn, condemn fasting. Jesus says later, when the bridegroom is taken away from them, i.e. when Jesus is ascended into heaven, then we begin to fast again, mourning and waiting for his return. But the point is this, what Jesus is bringing is completely new. Completely new. What Jesus gives his disciples, the people who follow him, the tax collectors, the sinners, what he gives is, is breaking paradigms which has multiple implications. I think the, the most profound is that if Jesus is bringing something that's brand new, then that means if I am comfortable with or satisfied with the Jesus that I'm following for years, months even, then I'm probably not seeing Jesus for who he really is. Or I'm probably not following Jesus into what he calls me to. Jesus is bringing something new all the time. And Jesus is with the people that we would probably say, yeah, they're not, they're not good enough for this. And yet he's saying, I am here for those exact people. Now there's two responses that were given here. There's a the response of Matthew and there's a the response of the Pharisees, right? The response of Matthew is what? Immediate. Get up, follow him. Why? 
Matthew knows that he's not worthy. Matthew knows that he's an outcast. Matthew knows his sin, his greed, his stealing from other people as a tax collector. Matthew knows his brokenness, and then the tax collectors and the sinners, they don't need to be told of how broken they are. There's a, there is a response of them to Jesus, and it's, I want to be with him. I want to eat with him. He, he gives me this freedom that I can't describe. There's that response. Then there's a the response of the Pharisees. And how do the Pharisees respond? They respond with, I, I kind of know what I'm doing. I'm the, I'm the one that's serious about this. I'm the one with the right worldview. I'm the one who understands this the best. I'm the one who can talk about the structure of Matthew. And yet, how, how do they respond? In this section, not great. Jesus, why are you doing that? That's not what a good Jew does. That's not what a good rabbi does. And so the, the call to both the Pharisees and Matthew is simple. It's the call of Jesus and of John the Baptist in chapter three. It's the call of Jesus in chapter four. Repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you're Matthew, you need to repent of your sin, of your brokenness, of your exploiting others for your own self, self-satisfaction. If you're the Pharisees, you need to repent of your right doing. You need to repent of what leg you think you're standing on because you're doing all the right stuff. Because in front of Jesus, when he brings his presence to us, nothing remains the same. And so, I, I, we're actually gonna close with a song, and Tori, if you wanna come up now, you can do that, but um, I did not choose this song. Tori chose it, I did not talk to her about this, but the song is, is called The Heart of Worship. And I, I mean, I really think the spirit of the living God chose this song, because what the song is all about is, is getting rid of everything that we think we might be holding on to in our own. Having this right understanding, but missing the whole point and instead just entering into this posture of worship. And so as we, as we think about these lyrics, I wanna invite you to identify yourself with one of these two characters, Matthew or the Pharisees. Those are the two pictures we have right now of response to Jesus. I want you to think, am I, in what ways am I like Matthew? Or I can clearly see my brokenness. I can clearly see what the Lord is calling me to repent from. And in what ways am I like the Pharisees? Where I actually, I can't, I don't even know if I can see all the ways that I'm, I'm like the Pharisees. Whatever, however the Spirit leads you, I want you to respond in humbling yourselves and asking the Spirit to move in us and to forgive us as we repent of our sins. So let's pray. Actually, can I, have, can I invite you guys to stand up? And as you're standing, let's, let's pray. Father, You are, the, you are the God who saves. You are not the God of the dead, but of the living. And so, Lord, I ask that you would give us your life. I ask that you would bring to mind ways that we're more like Matthew. I would ask that you would bring to mind ways that we're like the Pharisees. And as we sing, Lord, we ask that you'd be gracious to us and hear our prayers.
Thanks again for listening, and we pray this was a blessing to you. If you have any questions or comments about what you heard, our email is info at com, or you can find us on social media at Gospel. Thank you.